Good evening and welcome to This Week in Football from the makers of Low Limit Football. I am your host, Joe Ucello, and tonight I'm joined, as always, by my host, Mr. Roberto Rojas, and our special guest, Mr. Stel Stiliano from the Shoot the Defense podcast. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining us as we break down the Premier League as they get set to return this week to complete the 2019-2020 season. Stella, I want to start out with a question to you, and I want to talk about Liverpool. Obviously, the uh, the champions in waiting, they're not officially there. However, with a City loss to Arsenal this week and a Liverpool win in the Merseyside Derby up on the weekend, they will officially, mathematically, be crowned Premier League champions. Um, from your perspective, how... How are Liverpool fans approaching this, knowing that the stadiums will be empty and there's not that that celebration that should have come for this for a team that's been waiting over 30 years for a title? What's your reaction to that? Right. Um, so I've spoken to numerous Liverpool fans in over the past few months, especially during the whole COVID-19 situation, the lockdown uh, situation we were in. And I said to them, if and when the Premier League resumes and you win the title, how are you going to stop a million fans going to Liverpool to celebrate in the streets? Because when United did the treble, we had a million fans in Manchester celebrating. And this is Liverpool's first title in 30 years, as you said earlier. So how are you going to stop a million people going to Liverpool to celebrate winning the title? You can't do it. Now, we've seen over the past few days, the amount of protesters, whether it be Black Lives Matter or those racist idiots that go up London to do whatever they got to do they're not adhering to social distancing. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you're not going to stop these fans going to celebrate their team winning the title. So I don't think that Liverpool fans feel that it's a tainted league title because of the break. I don't think it's going to change their, their minds on things. And in the day, they're champions. They deserve it. And I called it in October when I came on your podcast. I just said they're too good and I stand by it. You know, it's interesting that you say that, and because we know what the quality of their second place, you know, the runners-up in this case, will be in Manchester City, because you know the team that they've had, you know, uh, the quality that they obviously had when they won the, the title last season, even though it was a much more closer race. You know, no one expected this big of a gap between both these two teams, but going from City's perspective, Stel, I mean, now you look at this kind of big gap, which... In a way, I think it was always going to be a failure to not win the Premier League. Um, and, and obviously in this fashion, uh, make, it makes it even more worse. And then you add in what could possibly happen in the Champions League. Mind you, they're also technically banned as well. I mean, wh- what's next for them? I mean, you know, I mean, for Guardiola in this case, you know, do, they, do the Sheikhs really want to continue with this project going forward? I mean, what's your take on that? Wow. Uh, where do I begin? Okay, so I can answer this in numerous ways. Now, the, the first thing you mentioned was... Uh, you know, Liverpool and City being the two teams that everyone thought were going to be challenging for the title and Liverpool have run away with it. it, it it's simple how it works, Rob. What you've got to bear in mind is that Liverpool were winning week in, week out, right? So what City are doing, they're playing catch-up. They drop points, Liverpool win. They drop points again, Liverpool win. City win a few games and they drop points again and Liverpool keep on winning. They keep on winning. Liverpool lost against Watford. I think the last time they dropped points was against United uh, at Old Trafford. Right. So it's obviously damaging Man City's confidences. It's demoralizing them. And on top of that, 
they're picking up injuries left, right and centre. There's uncertainty over certain players. There was even rumours that Guardiola was going to leave at one point. So when you've got all of this happening, it's, it's a combination of so many different factors. The way I see it, first of all, they were very arrogant not replacing Vincent Company. I don't care what anyone says. He was the glue that held them together defensively, right? And regardless of whether people were saying, oh, he had injuries left, right and centre, we saw that back in the last season what he could do, right? He scored that, that thunderbolt against, against Leicester City, which effectively won them the title, right? So he was a key player. They didn't replace him, okay? On top of that, what you're saying about the, the um, Sheikh Mansour and, and, and Man City, this is a project that they've been working on for years, and they're not going to stop it because Liverpool have won the league for one season. It's a side that is ageing. There are a lot of players there that really are at the tail end of their careers, like the Fernandinho's, like your David Silvers, Aguero, even though he's scoring goals. So there needs to be a rebuild. Now, this, as far as I'm concerned, is Guardiola's biggest challenge as a manager ever, right? Now, I said this on TalkSport a couple of seasons ago. In fact, it was last season, beginning of last season. Um, and I was saying, well, this is Guardiola's biggest challenge because he's never had a, a contender that's that's fighting him, um, you know, head to head, week in, week out, which is what Liverpool were doing. And obviously City won the league title that season. So he overcame that obstacle. But now this is his biggest um, uh, challenge because how much is he going to have to spend? Right. How many players does he have to get rid of? How much does he need to lower this wage bill? COVID has really thrown a spanner in the works uh, for, for their future plans, as far as I'm concerned. As I said, this is a major, major challenge. But I don't think the Arabs are going to say, ah, no, no, we're, we're just going to bail out. No, no, no. So that's not how it works. These guys are winners. I've been to the Middle East. I've been to the United Arab Emirates on numerous occasions, right? And they want to be the best. They will stop at nothing to be the best. So watch this space. Whether or not Guardiola is going to be there next season, I don't know. Champions League is obviously up in the air at the moment, um, but we don't know what's going to happen. The Court of Arbitration of Sport might get involved. You just don't know. I don't know. You know, it's great that you actually mentioned that kind of um, loss of leadership that Vincent Company had uh, and that was so vital for many seasons, and obviously in last season as well. I mean, you know, with David Silva leaving and, you know, with an aging Fernandinho, I mean, is this, you know, the best, who do you think is the best person to to come in and, and replace that leadership component? You know, is it is it their crown jewel and Kevin De Bruyne? I mean, or is it Sterling or who is it? Rob, how can you replace... Uh decades worth of experience i mean you look at david silver i don't know how many games david silver's played for man city but he's played a hell of a lot of games especially in the in the years that they've been successful same with company you know it's like i said with united when i hate to bring this bring this up but when uh david moyes came in and slowly slowly you see your ferdinands your villages your skulls your gigs your everest all leaving you're thinking these are years, decades worth of experience. People that have won titles left, right and centre that knows what it takes to win. City are in that similar situation. They're players on the back end of their careers and they need to replace them with players that have that, that, that hunger but also know how to win. Granted, you know, Sterling and, and De Bruyne, they might be the players to carry them forward. But I don't... I, I don't... Uh, I, you know what? He's probably going to come back and bite me in the ass, but... I, I don't see them as the strong leaders, the guys that will that will talk. Do you get what I'm saying? They do their talking on the pitch, right? But there's only so far that can get you. You need someone that can G players on, like a Fernandinho can. Do you know what I mean? Like company can. 
that person in the dressing room. I don't know if if De Bruyne is that person. Maybe Sterling is because we've seen how he's handled the media, how he's handled you know the way that you know as I said the people in the press have treated him in the past, and he's just risen above it. So maybe he could be that person. But in terms of that that leader, you know, in terms of that that Captain Marvel, I don't know who who can be at the city at the moment. Still, uh, the, the way I see it, that they need to really really focus on on their youth academy because they've. They've got a lot of talented players, but again, they're, they're very good at selling players to, to balance the FFP. So, I don't know. Sorry, Joe. No, no, no. I, I actually want to step in because I want to throw in a name, and I'm glad you did get that little bit in about the academy and developing players because the solution that I have is someone who is considered a leader and would be a very short-term situation given his age. Thiago Silva is going to be on a free coming off of PSG. He, he fills that central defender role. He fills that leadership role as he was captain of the Brazilian national team. Wouldn't Wouldn't... Thiago Silva be somebody that maybe Pep Guardiola and City should, could take a flyer on for a year or two until they maybe find that next piece? That's a very, very good question, my friend. Very good question. I, I, you know, he's what? How old is he now? He's got to be 35 years old. 35. Yeah, yeah. He's got to be yeah. 35 years old. He's got bags of experience. Um, I think Thiago Silva would be a fantastic signing if Man City had four or five defenders there that were quite young that could learn from him. And again, go back to United. When we signed Laurent Blanc, he was 36 years old and people were very critical saying, you know, he's coming to replace Yap Stam and, you know, um, he, he's not going to be the right man for Man United. Well, yeah, he, he didn't have a fantastic first few months at the club. But ask Rio Ferdinand, John O'Shea, Wes Brown, Gary Neville, all the players that were in their mid-20s at the time or early 20s at the time, what did they learn from Laurent Blanc? Right, and they will tell you they've learned a hell of a lot of stuff. So maybe if Man City have four or five younger players that you know are going to be there for the long term, for ten years, for eight years, bring in Thiago Silva and see what he can teach him. I don't know if he speaks English. You know, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know, um, but he he could be a good call. But you know, the Premier League is unforgiving, mate. You know, does he have the physicality? Does he have the speed? You know, can you imagine Thiago Silva up against? Uh, uh, I don't know, Salah in a foot race. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't That's know. True. We saw with Demi Kalis what happened to him. So, I don't know. It's a good call, though. It definitely is a good call, and, and it'll be interesting to see if they're able to find that kind of leadership uh, role, uh, even if it takes a long time, you know. It, it will be interesting. But looking into the table in itself, I mean, obviously, we still have a race um, for qualifications to Europe. We still have Leicester City in that role, who perhaps are... More, more, more so certain to go into a Champions League spot. I mean, then you have the likes of Chelsea in there, um, your Manchester United, of course, and we'll get to that in a second. But we have teams like Wolves, Sheffield United, Spurs, even Arsenal still fighting for that as well. I mean, well, going into obviously, we're going to put it into more of a United perspective. You know, how, how do you see them finishing the season, and you know, how do you see this kind of race for the remaining spots for the Champions League and Europa League spots, though? Rob, it's funny because when teams go on a really bad run and then the international break comes, people say they really needed this international break so they can get their asses in gear and bounce back. Right now, the Premier League, it's almost as if half the teams didn't need this COVID break and half did. If you look at Leicester, their form was poor. It was really poor. Um, you know, whereas United was fantastic. Then you got Sheffield United, who, whose form was great. And then same with Arsenal, their form was was atrocious. So some teams needed this break and some teams didn't. I'm just worried about the quality of football. I'm not worried about 
United because at the end of the day, it is what it is. We, you know, we're we're fifth in the table, three points behind Chelsea in fourth. Anything can really happen. We've got Marcus Rashford back. A lot of our players, Pogba, everyone's practically 100% fitness. Eric Bailly. So you could say, yeah, we're, we're in good stead. But then again, you've got the likes of Spurs. You've got the likes of Sheffield United, Arsenal. Same situation. Um, I, I don't know, Rob. I, I am quite confident going into this this um, the, the back end of the season because we've got nine games left. Um, but because these games are coming thick and fast, I don't know about recovery time, mate. Do you get what I'm saying? And it's almost as if they've had a longer preseason. And we've seen in the past how teams are slow starters because obviously because of the, the, the summer break and then they come back and they need to get some match fitness and match sharpness. I don't know if the levels of intensity are there for us. We've seen in the past, you know, especially at the beginning of the season when Oli came in you know, full time, obviously, and um, he battered the players in, in the summer. We had injuries at the beginning of the season because the players couldn't cope with the demands of his training methods and then playing 90 minutes and then, you know, having a day off, a couple of days off or going back into training. The next day. I don't know. So, yeah, you might see a lot of players dropping like flies, mate. You, you might see it. You know, Stal, I want to, I want to jump in here because what we've seen so far in La Liga and the Bundesliga coming back, and even in the Coppa Italia matches for Serie A, we've we've definitely seen a drop in quality of football, a drop in quality of fitness. I think that lends itself to the ability to train during the pandemic. Um, so coming into the break now, or coming off of the break now for the Premier League, what teams do you see that are best positioned depth-wise to handle maybe an injury or some fatigue or some match fitness that can maybe make a run at, at a European spot or make a run out of the relegation zone or something like that? And which teams do you see are less uh, well-equipped to handle coming off of this, even though they get the five subs and all that stuff? you got to look at the big boys, mate. As I said, United, we've got big squads. You know, defensively, we've got every every position covered with with two or three players. You know, I was thinking about our midfield today, and we, we've got Matic, Fred, uh, Pogba, uh, Bruno Fernandez, McTominay. That's five already. So in the centre midfield, we're fine. Up top, we've got Igalo back. Uh, Rashford is is back. Martial, uh, James. So we, I think the big teams like your United's, your Chelsea, even Wolves. Wolves have got big depth. I worry for Sheffield United. Because they've had a fantastic season so far. But again, they don't have the depth. They really don't. Tottenham and Arsenal, they, they could be in the shout for, for, for Europa League. You just don't know. But as I said, the, the teams with the big squads, with the big game players, they're the ones that, that will be fine. You've got to worry for the, your Aston Villas. You've got to worry for your Bournemouth. I think Watford will be fine. I think West Ham will be fine. Um, so, yeah, but in, in, answer, in answer to your question, yeah, Champions League... Uh, Chelsea United obviously going to be in with a shout. I think Wolves, but then you have got Spurs and Arsenal that might make a late, late attack. I don't know. Like I said, it, it's down to the quality. It's down to injuries. But I think the teams with the the, the, the biggest squad depth will be the ones that will be better positioned to uh, to qualify for these these uh, European spots. That, that's a really sitting on the fence kind of answer, isn't it, Joe? Sorry, mate. <laughs> it's a, definitely a good Splint, answer. Though. Splinters on my backside. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's actually good that you also mentioned, you know, kind of the quality that we'll see on the pitch. And, and you know, going into that still, I mean, obviously, we know well, that we're going to have these games behind closed doors. And we know how environments could definitely influence matches. You know, we see the stadiums like your Anfields, like your uh, Stamford Bridge, Old Trafford, you know, go on its Emirates and all those stadiums. I mean, now that you exclude that from, from the general public, 
and you know obviously you put into what kind of quality that we'll see um from players on the pitch i mean how big of a factor do you think these teams will end up um going through when you know there's no fans in the stadium especially uh maybe for one of these relegation team relegation bound teams that are looking to obviously get out of that and, and escape the drop rob i think it's absolutely massive because sorry to bring up the cliche but fans are effectively the 12th man and when you go to, to an away ground like Carrow Road, where the fans are on top of you, when you go to Bournemouth, when it's, you know, it's blustery and then you've got fans and, you know, it, it can be quite intimidating for certain players who, who, are, who are ball jobs, you know. So going to a stadium with no fans, uh, it, makes, it, it makes a huge, huge difference. Clubs are going to be going to Old Trafford and say, well, they, they do that anyway. They go to Old Trafford and think, ah, it's going to be, <laughs> it's not going to be as intimidating as what it was, but... You know, you'll be going to the new White Hart Lane. They'll be going to the Emirates. They'll be going to, you know, St. James's Park. And they'll be like, ah, you know, there's, there's no one in the ground. Uh, and to be honest, it makes the referees' jobs a hell of a lot easier. Because not only do they have VAR to help them, they don't have, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 fans on top of them. And do you know what? To be honest, I think this could be a good thing in terms of the, the, disciplinary, the, the disciplinary side of things. Because in rugby... You know, fans uh, are very, what's the word? Uh, they're diplomatic. They're, they're good fans. They're not known for, for uh, being hooligans. The players have respect for the referees. Now, when you've got a, a decision that a referee has to make, you're going to hear the players effing and blinding. They're going to have to watch what they say. Do you get what I'm saying? So, I don't know, man. I, I think this makes the referees' jobs a whole lot easier. But at the same time, it adds pressure for them to get decisions right. The, the little decisions. So, yeah, it, 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 it could play a massive part in, in who goes up and who goes down or who stays up, should I say, who, who goes down. Uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting view to, you know, make VAR easier, make the referees' lives easier. Um, I think it'll be interesting, too, for the fans, depending on if we get that. No, no, don't, don't make their lives easier, Joe. They get well, paid enough. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, I think it's interesting for what we've seen on, on the, in the stadiums and the broadcasts that don't have that, uh, that extra audio pumped in for the quote-unquote atmosphere, that um, you can hear what, what they're saying. You can hear what's being said between players. You can hear what's being said between referees. And I think it's interesting because, you know, right now so far we've had the, the Bundesliga, we've had the, uh, the, the La Liga uh, come back. And in the United States here, you know, where, where the primary language of the, of the country is English, um, we don't hear or maybe we don't understand some of the things that are being said. So now we're going to get a taste of that with the Premier League coming back. I think it, it opens a whole new level of, of viewership in terms of what, what can we expect? What's being said between these players? Are, are they being reprimanded? Are, are they being vulgar? What is, what is going on? I, I can't wait to see what they say about that now. And I want to bring up a question that, that Rob just put to me, too, because I wanted to ask you about this. Um, before I go to my last spot on the interview, what's your view on the natural sound versus the fake sound, having that, that stuff pumped in? Do you, do you like it on the other broadcasts you've seen? Do you think it's terrible? What are your thoughts on that? I hate it. Yeah. I absolutely hate it. I was, I was watching Mainz the other day, the champion of the, uh, the Bundesliga. I watched about 28 seconds and I, I, was, I was saying to myself, what is this? I, the funny thing is I was talking to Rodri, uh, Rodri Giggs a few mm. weeks ago. And he's like, have you have you heard about what's going on in Germany? I'm like, no. He goes, well, they're going to be pumping like crowd noises into the the broadcast. I'm like, get out of it. He goes, yeah, yeah. So he messaged me. He goes, are you watching this? I says, yeah. It's really weird, isn't it? <laughs> now, uh, look, I used to play FIFA 19, 
Mm-hmm. Right. And the, 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 the crowd noises were, yeah, it was, it was it's what you expect from a computer game. And while it, it adds to the realism of it, come on, it, it looks bizarre. There's no one in the, in the stadium <laughs> and the broadcast, the, the broadcasters are putting these noises. Let's, let's be real here. Yeah. What's to say that there aren't going to be fans outside the stadium like you saw in Portugal, like the FC Porto fans were doing? Right. What's, what's to say there aren't going to be fans outside watching the game on their phone and making noise? You, you don't. You don't know. You just don't know. This, this, this is something that we've never encountered before. Never. So anything could happen. For you know, there might be someone uh, parachuting themselves into the stadium. You might see like a streaker, like they did in the eighties. You, you don't know. You just don't know. Well, you, you had the pitch invader on the weekend at Barcelona. <laughs> oh yeah, see, I, I didn't see that. But, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you get a pitch invader in an empty stadium? Rob and I are still did, asking that question. Did, did, were they holding a big sign saying "I love you, Semra Hunter"? Because if that, if it's probably someone that I know that did it. So. <laughs> no, no signs, no signs. So, oh, shame, um, let me um, before I ask you my final questions, I want to ask you about the bottom of the table. Let me give everybody the table so that we can review Liverpool. And this is pretty much after 29 matches for everybody. There's a couple of straggler matches that need to be made up. Uh, but on, uh, after 29 matches, Liverpool on 82 points from a possible 87, which is phenomenal. Manchester City in second on 57 points. Leicester in third on 53. Chelsea on 48. United on 45, rounding out the top five in the European spots. Then we have Wolves in sixth on 43, tied with Sheffield United. Eighth place gives you Tottenham at 41 points. One point behind is Arsenal at 40. Burnley and Crystal Palace on 39 points make up 10th and 11th place. Everton on 37 points. Newcastle on 35 Southampton on 34 points, Brighton on 29, and then we have the log jam at the bottom of the table. West Ham at 27, Watford at 27, Bournemouth at 27, currently on goal differential, occupying that last relegation spot. Then Villa on 25 and Norwich on 21. We talked about the depth of of some of the teams, and you'd mentioned West Ham being one of the deeper teams. So by just reading the tea leaves, I would say that you would estimate that West Ham will, will be able to avoid relegation. I also think given the point status of Newcastle and Southampton being seven points or better ahead of Bournemouth, that they would avoid relegation as well. So really the, the, the fight is Brighton, Watford, who was atrocious to open the season, Bournemouth, Villa, and Norwich. Of those teams, which of those five teams, which three do you feel are going to be the relegation-bound teams uh, after the end of the season? Um, well, I thought at the beginning of the season that Norwich were going to stay up. Um, they were very impressive last season in the championship, but again, it, it's a different animal. The Premier League, you know, the intensity is so much more. Uh, it's 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 too demanding. So Daniel Farke has been is a fantastic manager, but I, I think Norwich are going to go down. I hope Bournemouth go down. I, I'm sorry, I, I can't stand them. I cannot stand them. Um, but I'm not. Gonna you don't like Eddie Howe. You don't like Eddie Howe. <laughs> Uh, I, I plead the fifth, as you guys say. <laughs> you, you, you don't like Timu Puki? I mean, come on. You would think Puki's at Norwich. Yeah, no, no, I know. I'm just saying that Norwich is the one. Listen, no disrespect, yeah, but Bournemouth have got Dominic Solanke, right? And he scored one goal in sixty odd games or something like that. Come on, now I've said that he will probably score ten between now and the end of the season and keep him up. But yeah, yeah, I think Bournemouth will go. I think Watford will stay up. Wow. Um, I, I think, listen, they, they, uh, Pearson is a very good manager and he, he'll have them drilled. Mm. And, you know, when they've got Troy Deeney there, anything can happen with them. So, yeah. So uh, Between Villa, Villa other, and Brighton, right? Does the other look... teams to go, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I don't want to say it's because I don't mind um, Potter, but mm-hmm. I don't think he'll work his magic. I think they'll go down. 
I think they'll go down. Yeah. I mean, I, I, look, I like Aston Villa. I like them. I, I like. Uh, sorry, let me start this again. I like Villa Park because okay. I've got some very good memories of, of Villa Park, and their fans are really good. The Villa fans. Mm-hmm. Um, I could tell you some stories about getting involved in some of them in a, in a pub once, but I'm not going <laughs> to go into that just yet. Um, but yeah, so I think Brighton, Bournemouth, and Norwich City will go down. I'm hoping Bournemouth go down, but they probably won't now. I said that so. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Again, so we kick off on Wednesday with uh, with City Arsenal is the big one. Merseyside Derby on the weekend as well between Liverpool Everton. Uh, possible crowning of a champion by the end of the week, and the Premier League is back. So, gentlemen, I want to thank you both for joining me tonight and helping me break down the Premier League. So, for Mr. Roberto Rojas and for Stel Stiliano, I am Joe Ucello. Thanks for listening, everyone, and good night.